Hello again, my friends. This is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. And thank you for coming back to this series on cryptozoology, focusing for another week on the theories surrounding Yeti, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and other large, hairy, bipedal primates. This week we're going to be looking into some of the theories around their existence that situate the Sasquatch as a hoax, a hallucination, a delusion, or something similar. So this week's discussion is particularly indebted to The Locals, a contemporary investigation of the Bigfoot Sasquatch phenomena by Tom Powell, which I have referenced before, as well as The Truth About Bigfoot Legend by Linda Milligan, published in Western Folklore, Volume 49, Number 1 in 1990, and Abominable Snowman or Bigfoot, a psychoanalytic search for the origin of Yeti and Sasquatch tales by Manfred Ketdevry. I'm very sorry if I completely butchered that name, but I will try my best not to. I'm just going to have to stick with one pronunciation and go for it. <laughs> so we have spent a lot of time with people who claim that Bigfoot could exist, but so far none of these explanations are complete enough to prove that they do exist. So... None have resulted in truly persuasive evidence that the whole world, scientific and cryptozoological, are in agreement about. So the locals posits that a modern cryptozoological viewpoint gives many reasons that proof of this kind is hard to come by. But the fact is that the large majority of the scientific community believes there is little proof, if any, of Bigfoot's existence. So we are stuck right now in the gulf between plausibility and provability. A lot of what we've spoken about goes a long way to imply anomalous primates are plausible, but actually make it harder over time to prove them as provable. So the general consensus is that, realistically, the only tangible evidence we have for Bigfoot or Sasquatch experiences are their footprints. So to quote Milligan, the sum of the evidence for and against the creature's existence, taken together, defies easy answers. Explanations that all but ignore parts of the evidence may require a stretch of the imagination as great or greater than anything collected in the field. Why, if they are real, are there no bodies, no bones, no live specimens locked securely in zoos and laboratories? Why only certain kinds of physical evidence, invariably of a somewhat ambiguous nature? Footprints, strands of hair or fur, possible faeces samples, and not others. So none of the explanations we have previously spoken of are a perfect fit to explain this seeming contradiction. And none of the ones we will talk about today are either, sorry, spoiler alert, um, but there are people out there experiencing something. So let's explore some of those things and what some potential explanations might be for the experiences that people are having. Let's get into it. Let's start with right off the bat by saying that the easiest explanation for Bigfoot or Sasquatch evidence, at least the evidence we have come to class as Bigfoot leaving, such as prints, hair, droppings certain photo and video evidence, for example, the easiest explanation for these is that they are pieces of evidence faked by humans. 
So we've already spoken in previous episodes of the faked Bigfoot tracks and the claims that people have made to have been involved in the faked Patterson-Gimlin film, whether it is faked or not. We've also touched on the case of the Minnesota Iceman, where notable leading figures in the field of cryptozoology were unfortunately taken in by a well-made hoax and their own willingness to believe in it and their own wants to believe in it. We must also include the findings of the Yeti expeditions, where the Yeti hands and scalps, although not made to deceive, did turn out to be man-made in origin, turning out to be representations of holy items, not necessarily authentic pieces of a real creature. These events served to weaken the scientific standing of those who attempted to prove the physical existence of the creatures, and in general caused many to regard the field as nothing more than a kind of joke. When René de Hinden started to get in on the action with his cripple footage, which seemed only to exist to try to fool other cryptozoologists, it further damaged everyone's collective reputation. Therefore, from that point onwards, we can't rule out some or all of these pieces of evidence found as being attempts to fool their colleagues. Their colleagues are oftentimes nemeses for the chance at the last laugh. There was not a whole lot on the line at this point, but it would not stay that way. So scientific exploration into Bigfoot and Sasquatch have become less focused afield after the death of notable figures such as Grover Krantz, René de Hinden and John Green. But sightings of the creatures never stopped and neither did the hoaxes. So in 2008, there was the very public discovery of a Bigfoot carcass by Carl Salesman, Rick Dyer and police officer Matt Whitten. So it started off as some YouTube videos and a website back in 2008, where the pair sort of took advantage of this point in time where viral videos often gained an audience out of nowhere, yet the subjects within them tended to maintain some level of privacy. They didn't have as much on the line at this point by putting out this hoax as they would if they attempted the same thing today. But nonetheless, the pair claimed to have discovered the corpse of a creature and managed to keep it on ice, in order for scientific testing to prove it to be what they claimed, a Sasquatch. Ultimately, it would turn out to be far from it, but an internet-purchased Sasquatch costume stuffed with possum roadkill and slaughterhouse leftovers. It's just a big hoax, a big joke. It's Bigfoot. Bigfoot doesn't exist, Dyer explains. And Witten adds, All this was a big joke. It got into something way bigger than it was supposed to be. So this is an article for CNN. In the opinion of the two men, the idea that Bigfoot is just a joke and a belief in them, tongue-in-cheek, was a given. And they claimed to be surprised to be taken seriously when they came forward with their discovery. But taken seriously it was, and police officer Witten lost his job due to his participation in the hoax. So Clayton County Police Chief Jeff Turner kicked Witten off the force for it. His argument being that for a police officer, they were only as good as their word. To quote, he lied on national TV, he says of Witten. 
So a defence attorney could now say, how do we know he's not lying now? Once he perpetrated a fraud, that goes into his credibility and integrity. He has violated the duty of a police officer. And it was not as simple as a rumour that just got out of control. The men offered the story to well-known Sasquatch websites for a cash advance and the offer for the scoop of their discovery. More money changed hands before the Searching for Bigfoot site team were permitted to view the freezer containing the 7 foot 7 half-ape, half-man carcass. And what's more, the men seem to have some idea of how best to promote their fraud. Teaming up with Las Vegas promoter Tom Biscardi, founder of the Great American Bigfoot Research Organization, and well-renowned in the field of cryptozoology as the kind of guy who brings nothing good to the field. He is regarded as kind of stealing other people's ideas and constantly positioning himself as the only true Bigfoot investigator out there when he has been perpetrated in a number of hoaxes. The duo approached Tom Biscardi in order to drum up attention before the much-awaited DNA analysis of the creature. And like I say, Tom Biscardi is a name that many claim brings shame to the field, but he positions himself as a serious and maybe the only serious investigator into the Bigfoot phenomena. He was therefore a great spokesperson for bringing light to a community that had been driven mostly underground by these successive hoaxes. By that meaning, the community was mostly rebuilding itself online with its online presence. The three held a press conference in Palo Alto, California, where Biscardi once again used his notoriety to try to convince the world that this was the real thing. To quote Biscardi, Last weekend, I touched it. I measured its feet. I felt its intestines. But as mentioned, Biscardi was no stranger to hoax himself. In 2005, he appeared on radio's Coast to Coast AM with the claim that he knew the location of a captured live specimen and would air footage of the creature on a pay-per-view web service. He appeared on the radio multiple times over multiple weeks, again, just drumming up interest in this event in the same way that was done with the 2008 hoax. However, on the day of the footage's release... Biscardi goes on the radio again with the claim that he has been fooled, that he had been promised the specimen dishonestly, and only after pressure did he agree to refund people's money for the subscription to view the creature, which he now admits did not exist. So can you claim it all as being a big joke? So Biscardi's involvement of the radio in this case didn't help him, as many assumed the extended coverage that the unfolding story was getting on the radio meant something about its authenticity. And this is from an article on BFRO. So hoaxes such as Biscardi cannot lean entirely on the everyone-knew-it-was-a-joke defence, as often they make efforts to situate their claims in contexts that imply authority or truth, such as on the radio, or out of the mouth of a police officer, for instance. 
It is also hard to argue that Biscardi truly was hoodwinked in the 2005 incident as lying through his teeth about obviously faked evidence is unfortunately a bit of a calling card for him. In 1981, Biscardi had produced a documentary called In the Shadow of Bigfoot, which contained old Ivan Marks faked Bigfoot footage. And this is footage that is widely regarded to be a hoax, and not just a hoax, but a laughably bad hoax. But nonetheless, Biscardi had maintained for decades that the footage was 100% genuine, and simultaneously decried the Patterson-Gimlin film as definitely hoaxed, despite it being the one piece of evidence that the bulk of the cryptozoological field are in general agreement about it being potentially genuine. So on the one hand, we have a timeline of proven Bigfoot hoaxing. We have clear money-making and attention-seeking motivation, and it clearly works. These hoaxes get headlines over and over again. And in many cases, we have those involved admitting to their involvement in the fakes. So the two we were talking about earlier, Witten and Dyer, did admit at the end that they had perpetrated a fake. But a faked corpse or a hand or a faked print or even dozens perpetrated by various fraudsters do not entirely explain what is being experienced across the US and Canada every year. They cannot all be fakes. It would not make sense that so many of these fakes happen but are not publicised in any way. It's hard to argue what the motivation for doing a fake or a hoax that nobody knows about is. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who'd get joy from that, but are there really that many people perpetrating a widespread hoax but without wanting any notoriety for it? So let's explore some other possibilities. It can be argued that belief in Bigfoot can be more associated with the paranormal and with spirituality than it does confidence in a scientific hypothesis. So Bigfoot, we could argue, is an aspect of folklore, and folklore necessitates a leap of faith, and leaps of faith are antithetical to the idea of proof. It is an artefact of our brain's desire to find cause and effect. That ability to predict the future is what makes humans smart, but it also has side effects like superstitions and belief in the paranormal. So this is from a life science article. But it is not as easy to say that it is all in the brain, as profiling the typical Bigfoot believer turns out to be as challenging as determining the scientific methodology of a psychic. However, perhaps amazingly, paranormal beliefs are not related at all to education. PhDs are as likely as high school dropouts to believe in Bigfoot. It is the opinion of those writing for this article that there is not one kind of brain that is linked with the Bigfoot phenomena. The essence of belief legend is the very dispute over a truth which remains veiled. This is from Linda Milligan's article. Real folk legend must produce a reason and feasibility to profess faith, to take a stand for or against belief. Therefore, trying to prove a folklore belief would be to miss the point of faith, is what Milligan is saying in this article. Folklorists should recognise that the evidence is ambiguous. If it were not, if it were clear and indisputable, 
there would be no legend. So this makes a bit more sense when we consider something that we haven't spent much time talking about so far, i.e. that some of the reported encounters with Bigfoot are positive ones. Not every encounter is a terrifying ordeal that leads people to leave the woods and never return. Of course, we have to be aware that anecdotal evidence is a weak form of data when it comes to scientific proof, but the kinds of anecdotes we find may say something about the motivations of those who report them. So we already touched on this with the story of Grover Krantz and his contemporaries, with the implication that some of these semi-amateur, semi-scientific wild men of cryptozoology may have had a reason behind wanting to believe in the creature's existence, wanting to carve out a little bit of a scientific field for themselves, and also as the creatures existed as somewhat of a foil for themselves, noble, elusive, somewhat out of step with the rest of the world, but nevertheless intelligent and to be respected. But paranormal beliefs are widespread. There are all kinds of people who take comfort in paranormal and folkloric beliefs, not just cryptozoologists. So let's explore a few interactions which may enlighten us to why many people other than cryptozoologists may want to believe in the Sasquatch. And that this want to believe may be enough to help perpetuate some of these experiences. And these conclusions are only possible due to the efforts of those who collect and analyse civilian sightings in recent years. So BFRO is a big one, they host a huge database of people's sightings. And from this we know a few things. We know that Bigfoot in general is a rural phenomena. We also know that some, not all of those who claim to have crossed paths with Bigfoot, assume them to be intelligent beings capable of understanding the offer of food from us, able to send a message that they are watching us, and in very rare cases, intelligent enough to interfere should a human or humans put themselves in mortal danger. There are multiple individuals who claim to have been watched over by the creatures after they were lost, injured, or otherwise vulnerable out in the wilderness. So many are also of the opinion that when Sasquatch appears, it is because they have chosen to do so. So to quote Tom Powell in The Locals, you don't find Sasquatches, they find you. So this goes some way to explain why the creatures seem to avoid cameras at all costs. Again to quote Powell, I can't explain how a dumb animal could possibly understand remote video monitoring and the ways to avoid it. Unless, of course, they're not really dumb animals. So this theory again attempts to reconcile one of the issues with Bigfoot, the seeming conspicuous lack of evidence. If the animals were to exist, even as rare, isolated relic populations, surely we would have found evidence for them. But the belief in the intelligent, caring, forest guardians reported by some, not all, sightings to BFRO have more in common with folklore than they do with science, as we've already touched upon. They have more to do with a willingness to believe and a wish for other intelligent bipedal primates, ones perhaps more in tune with nature, 
protective, private, cooperative, all of the things that humans have been struggling with in recent years. So living at balance with nature, quietly and peacefully, is a wish for many, as for many more, it is simply not a reality. But we are just touching on this subject today, and in order to provide a broad overview, we're going to move on for now, but do know that I am aware this is a simplification of a huge subject. But the reasons behind why people want to believe in the paranormal is kind of the whole deal of this podcast, so I will, of course, keep revisiting this subject over and over again. But let's move on to a partial psychological explanation that Bigfoot sightings may be simple hallucinations. To quote Ket sighting of Sasquatch and Yeti are most likely of a delusionary, illusionary, and hallucinatory nature, and as such, the projections of conflicting images of people living in isolated environments under conditions of severe stress. So these hallucinations are presumed to be due to stress, again helping to reconcile some of the contradictions about the Bigfoot story, i.e. how some view the experience as terrifying and some view it in a more positive light. So explaining Bigfoot as a fear hallucination, as an effect and also a cause of said fear, as well as a sort of rationalisation for people who have been saved from peril by seemingly unexplained means. Like UAPs, Bigfoot can run the same gamut of experience, meaning different things to different people, but in many cases come bundled with extreme emotions, and with extreme emotions come the potential for hallucinations. So one key piece of evidence towards the hallucination hypothesis is one that we've already mentioned, that many Bigfoot experiences occur in rural areas. And what's more, they don't leave behind many physical traces. So many experiences may take place at night, Bigfoot are thought to be nocturnal, and are triggered or accompanied by the perception of being watched by a pair of eyes somewhere out in the inky blackness. So again, to quote Ket it is more likely that these observations can be listed among the delusionary, illusionary, and hallucinatory experiences induced by sensory deprivation. So unlike an illusion, in the case of hallucinations and delusions, an appropriate external stimulus is absent. It may be that they somewhat rely on or are perpetuated by this absence, i.e. the dark. So again, to continue from Ket in hallucinations, like in the dream, there is an absence of reality testing. In hallucinations, the person hears, smells, and sees things which are not there, but are mere projections of internal wishes. Therefore, the very legend-like status of the Bigfoot as out there in the woods may serve as a kind of seed for this kind of hallucinations. But hallucinations, of course, do not happen to everyone when they're in the dark. Many encounters happen to very experienced outdoorsy types who you would assume would have experienced this kind of absence of external stimuli we mentioned when staking out an animal in the dark or camping out in the wilderness for the night. 
But the fact is hallucinations can happen to anyone for a variety of reasons. They are not solely linked to poor mental health, but can be linked to physical health and even temporary states of stress. Total sensory deprivation, such as a lack of water and food, as well as social deprivation, such as isolation, can have the same effects, i.e. they can all trigger hallucinations. And in these cases, known folklore stories of wild men in the woods may serve as a kind of seed for the brain's mental projections. Or, as mentioned, they may have at their heart a degree of wish fulfilment. So there is a history of this kind of cross-pollination, in fact, which takes us back to the roots of the Sasquatch and Native American legend. So we're going to be covering this in more depth next week when we dive into the spiritual aspects of the Sasquatch and Bigfoot myth. But for now, I just want to touch on this overlap between legend and hallucination. So it is a custom among many Native American tribes that there is a process of seeking a spirit guide at the point of adolescence. And it is a process of sensory deprivation through fasting and absolute loneliness, combined with an institutionalised way of accepting visions as normal and inevitable, naturally facilitated, hallucinatory, illusionary and delusionary experiences. So this is to say that, according to Kate DeVry, the statement that Bigfoot or Sasquatch may be hallucination does not negate the fact that it may have a place in folklore as well. Honestly, it is an even more complicated explanation than you think it would be. It still doesn't exactly answer to the consistency with many experiences, nor explain some of the evidence left behind, even if the evidence is quite scant. But it is an aspect that goes some way to explaining why there is such a range of attitudes to Bigfoot, and why it continues to mean so many things to so many people. But moving on, many have pointed out the overlap between bears and apes, their place in myth, and the overlap in their habitats with Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, etc.'s habitats. I.e., this is one of the potential explanations in Ket article, and the one that gets the least criticism the theory that the sightings of Sasquatch or similar often occur in areas where either bear or apes are common. So in the case of the Pacific Northwest, for example, the stomping ground of Bigfoot and Sasquatch, American black bears as well as grizzly bears can be found in the wild. So it follows that not only are the creatures similar to Sasquatch to the point that they may be mistaken for another, but that the two animals in particular have inspired the imagination of man because of their resemblance to human beings. So apes and bears, animals both habitually standing on their hind legs, resemble man in many ways. So DeVry notes many aspects of legend and mythology that situate men and bears in relation to each other and thus become instruments of supernatural justice. Because bears, apes and man resemble each other in some way, the appearance of one may say something about the other, and how we treat these animals may reveal aspects of our own cultures. 
Bears in particular are feared and revered by many ancient civilization, perhaps because of their similarity to humans. So Sasquatch may be another one of these man-like animals imagined in opposition to man. So to quote De Vries again, Animals become like mirrors on which man can reflect his inner fears and wishes. If no animal is available to symbolise protective or threatening imagery, nothing restrains man from creating totally new imaginary beings aided by primary process thinking, as we can observe in dreams. So primary process thinking is a method of thought that differs qualitatively from waking thoughts. So it is a controversial Freudian theory in which primary process thinking is governed by the pleasure principle. It is the id-driven instinctual fulfillment of desires that ignores the constraints of the physical world that we see in dreams. So Ket de Vries argues that the Sasquatch, like the bear or the ape, might, due to its resemblance to us, become a part of this unconscious process of wish fulfilment, and that our unbounded practice of this in dreams may cause it to cross over as a figure of widespread folklore, building on the seed of existing myths and legends around the creature. So here's the sort of situation he puts forward, which I'm not totally convinced by, but let's have a little look. A child who has been frightened by a bear or ape the previous day might perceive these animals with negative effect. This perception, combined with ambivalent feelings, for example towards his father, might result in a transformation and integration of these two images in a dream. As a result, a creature might emerge which is half man and half bear or ape. So that's a situation he imagines and how these two might become conflated in dreams. But how this translation jumps from dream to legend, we don't know. But let's have a look at some of the more theories around its legend making of Sasquatch and Bigfoot. Ignoring all of the strange Freudian <laughs> father um, imagery, just for a second. So one theory is that they are reintegrated as stories. And it is these stories through which we make sense of the world. As a hypothesis, we may kind of fit the ill-fitting reality too, as part of an impulse to just make sense of things. What's more, some believe that this process and association will only strengthen over time. As we've talked about seeding this story and then strengthening this story to the point that it is more likely to be used as this sort of truth-fitting hypothesis in the future. To quote, If several members of a tribe had seen these Sasquatch, some memory traces would be retained by others, and the vision could more easily be re-experienced. So this way, a repeated story may strengthen itself through multiple experiences, and become the framework around which future experiences may shape themselves. Again, this is not a new concept. It is an idea around the foundation of folklore itself and would help to explain some of the eerie consistencies we find in some reported encounters. However, it does raise another question. Is it the case then that the mythology of Bigfoot is just more widespread than we are led to believe? Again, to quote Milligan, 
that the creature is the subject of a tradition that is far more widespread and far more conservative than folklorists recognise. As this implies, many of those who report their encounter to BFRO or similar only have a vague understanding of the creature they may have seen. Most report knowing little to nothing about them, perhaps just the name Bigfoot. And this does not go very far to suggest a rich mythology that people throughout the continental US and Canada are aware of, and having mentally embedded to the point that their hallucinating subconscious or dreaming brains would come to the same eerie conclusions. But there is evidence that the stories were there in some form from the get-go, and helped to spread the story once it reached peak popularity, instead of the other way around. So says Milligan, early accounts of wild men, mountain devils, and man-apes likely created fertile soil for Bigfoot stories to thrive, once press accounts of the Himalayan abominable snowman piqued the public's interest. But can we talk of Bigfoot, i.e. Bigfoot and the media, and these wild men stories as to interceding myths that merged and strengthened? Or were there historical accounts as there was a history of historical encounters. So again, to quote Milligan, because of the ambiguous nature of the evidence for and against Bigfoot, conclusions drawn around the nature of the belief are likely to be highly speculative and non-productive. So Milligan rejects a lot of what Ket DeVry does in his attempts to fit all the evidence into one theory around hallucination or myth as it just doesn't all fit, and it ignores a lot of people's experiences. But it may explain some people's experiences. For instance, one phenomena that might account for some experiences, and is honestly just quite interesting, hence me including it here, again in Ketavri's words, is some individuals in an attempt to master their fears of such strange creatures are engaged in a total identification process. That is his theory. I.e., imitation and impersonation become a consequence. It may explain the presence of these gigantic footprints. I.e., that some people may have so much fear of these creatures that in a way they take on some of their characteristics and in certain ways become them in order to master this fear. So Milligan recounted a psychiatric case in the 70s where a young man grew hysterical at the site where he and his brothers saw a glowing orb hovering above two ape-like creatures. He then began to growl like an animal and threw his father and the investigator to the ground with seemingly more than human strength. This behaviour stopped as soon as they left that area, and it seemed to those witnessing it that he was taking on some of these characteristics in an attempt to master the fear he felt of these ape-like creatures and their encounter with them. So this is just one case of a sudden encounter, and one way that we could imagine a person taking an active part in mastering their fear, and one way that could result in some kind of evidence being left behind. It could be an explanation, albeit a fairly weak one, 
for some of the prints that we find if people are performing this total identification process and then making these prints as part of these process. We could also imagine total identification process as having an effect to those spending extended periods of time tracking the creatures in isolation and that maybe they may unconsciously take on some aspects of the creatures in a way to be close to them or to understand them but crucially in a way that may leave behind some evidence as we were talking about evidence which they then may later find themselves and this is not totally out of the realms of possibility there is a theory that many of the tracks found on the yeti expeditions were actually the tracks of those on the teams which had been sort of transformed by the weather to the point that they found them again, they discovered them, but they discovered them as creatures' prints instead of their own. Now, I don't want you to think I'm mocking anyone who studies these creatures. As a widespread human experience, I think we have to assume that there could be a variety of factors that cause these creatures to appear to people in a range of emotional states. What's more, even if the creature were, as Kepteveri assumes, all in the head, a purely delusionary or illusionary creature, it does not mean that they are not part of human history. A specific example is the theory that they may represent a manifestation of a wish for a simpler past. As so-called wild men, this is to quote a Smithsonian article on the subject, As so-called wild men, they hold a crude mirror up to our own species. What might Homo sapiens be like if civilization had not removed it from nature? So this, again, is on the pervasiveness of Bigfoot belief, particularly in light of all the hoaxes we've spoken about earlier. To track Bigfoot today, article continued, is to channel the frontier spirit, as well as to appropriate Native American traditions. Bigfoot also embodies other less romantic but no less enduring American traits like gullibility and hunger for attention. So this article suggests, honestly kind of mean-spiritedly, that there may be something distinctly American about this belief. And it is true that Bigfoot and Sasquatch studies, among all anomalous ape studies, seems to have the largest body of people behind it in the US. But yet again, this is still not a perfect fit, as we again are stuck in this catch-22 of evidence. The physical evidence is always just enough to suggest that the reported manifestation was not purely hallucinatory. It is never enough to prove that it was objectively real. So we're going to take a quick look at just one more option before we leave it there for today. So is it possible that the creatures really are physical creatures, just not the ones that we think they are? So coming back again to the bear hypothesis, bears are smarter than many of us give them credit for. So bear researchers generally acknowledge that bears are clever enough to avoid obvious tracks that reveal not just the bear's presence, but their direction of travel, numbers, overall condition, and more. This is from Tom Powell. So this intelligence in the bears would explain why we lack this specific kind of evidence from anomalous apes, 
if they have a similar level of intelligence, then they can similarly avoid leaving these kinds of traces for us. So could it be that they have a similar level of intelligence to bears and we are simply underestimating them? Or could they seem similar to bears because they are bears and we are mistaking them through a variety of means for something more? So despite what we spoke of last week, all the biomechanical evidence for a creature being spotted in certain habitats through the 1950s onwards may feel like the science around the creatures does not go far enough. To quote Brian Regal again, By postulating that a monster is a relic form, hangover from the past, monster fans feel absolved from the necessity of explaining how such an outrageously unsuitable creature has evolved in light of present-day ecology. It defies all logic that there is a population of these things sufficient to keep them going says Philip Stevens, a cultural anthropologist and ethnologist at the University of Buffalo. What it takes to maintain any species, especially a long-lived species, is you've got to have a breeding population. That requires a substantial number spread out over a fairly wide area where they can find sufficient food and shelter to keep hidden from all investigators. But again and again, Bigfoot hunters have failed to bring forward the kind of evidence to support a viable breeding population, even one that through its own effort hides itself from human eyes for very good reasons. So the creatures as we experience them in encounters seem to be incapable of sustaining themselves in the wild. So their numbers, their size, their food sources, etc. are all at odds with their likelihood of survival. Therefore, again, it makes sense that at least some of the encounters may be mistaken for similar yet viable animal populations found in the area, such as bears. It is true that they have the same kind of weight and size advantage over man. They are similarly strong and both capable of walking on hind legs like a man. Therefore, the simplest explanation to many is that the sightings are simply wild animal sightings. And the reason we are not seeing this seemingly improbable Sasquatch creature, which seems at odds with general survival, is because we are not. We are seeing a creature that is capable of survival and has a provably viable breeding population. Why would experienced hunters misreport the sighting of a bear common to the area to the extent that this is widespread. In order for this to make sense, we kind of have to lean on one of the other theories. But what if the creatures aren't animals, and the reason we can't trap them or catch them is that they are in fact even more intelligent than our underestimated bears? Some suggest that we have failed to find the creatures because we hunt them as if they were animals, but maybe we are underestimating them and maybe we should be treating them more like men. So at the beginning we mentioned that there are only certain types of evidence found and in Tom Powell's The Locals, there's an excellent explanation on the weaknesses of all these kinds of found evidence and one that may strengthen the hypothesis that these creatures are closer to man than we may think. So footprints are valuable from a biomechanical standpoint. They give us a lot of information about the physical makeup of the creature who left them. 
But the holy grail in Bigfoot study is DNA evidence. And none of the evidence left behind is of any use to this end, unfortunately. So the mitochondrial DNA found in discovered creatures' hairs is too fragmented to allow for DNA sequencing. And before we assume that must mean that the creature is fake and that these hairs are faked, this is just a feature of certain kinds of hair, including certain kinds of human hair. So although efficacy of sequencing can vary due to methodology, there is a difference in viability between darker hair and lighter hair, even in humans. Some theorise that this is down to their susceptibility to UV damage, but put simply, not all hair is created equally when it comes down to DNA analysis. What's more, many people fundamentally misunderstand the limits of DNA analysis and what it can do. How can we ever hope to thoroughly map even a small portion of an undocumented species with minuscule amounts of DNA available for analysis, and much of it suspect for one reason or another? So again, this is from Powell. In order to prove that DNA is from a Bigfoot, you must first have some Bigfoot DNA. And even in the case of human DNA, with the huge amounts of it available to scientists and with the comparative high viability of the samples, i.e. them not being plucked from trees or out of droppings, it still took until 2003 to fully sequence human DNA. And if the creature is simply closer to human than it is animal, could it be that that DNA sequencing, and therefore scientific recognition for the creature, may be as long of a process as it was sequencing human DNA. It could simply be due to the fact that it is entangled with myth that science seems to be stubbornly still on the subject. In Canadian cryptozoologist John Green's words, considering the consistent resistance our society maintains to any exposure to information on the subject, our failure to have stumbled on proof of their existence while considerably against the odds, doesn't seem to me to require unearthly explanations. Add on to this modern theories that the creatures may be frightened of us for good reason, hence the strong smell associated with the creatures, which is linked to some ape species, and animals like skunks, which give off an odour while threatened. Modern cryptozoologists paint the picture of an intelligent creature with human-level or exceeding human-level intelligence, who chooses to avoid our detection and consciously avoid leaving evidence of their movements and numbers. Combined with the stubbornness of much of the scientific field, this explains why definitive proof eludes us for even one of these creatures existing. But as time passes, the odds for them all somehow having evaded detection for this long grow slimmer and slimmer. So this is a weird one. When I first started looking into this, I figured I would find one theory that would fit in my mind, probably not everyone else's mind, but one theory that seemed to make instinctual sense for me. So for instance, with alien encounters, a lot of the alien abduction encounters, I could see how the theory of them being sleep paralysis experiences ticked a lot of boxes. It made sense for the kinds of people who reported it, when they were likely to report it, and the kind of feelings they associated with it. 
there was a pattern that I could understand and perfectly understand how anyone in that situation with the same kind of general cultural knowledge could come to the same conclusion. But with Bigfoot, I don't think any of the theories we've spoken of today, or even up till today, make total sense, honestly. I can see how some in very specific cultural contexts make sense, but for the bulk of the encounters I've read about in books such as The Locals, they just don't really. How could an experienced hunter who could recognise the gait and track and smell of a bear mistake it for anything other than a bear? even under great stress, even a hunter who has been trapped in the isolation of the wilderness, alone, maybe something has happened to their water, they're alone and they're in trouble, could they mistake a bear or some mental projection for a huge bipedal primate? What would explain the presence many feel, the feeling of being watched and observed from inside the tree line? Is it some kind of guardian of nature that some wish existed that had passed from wish to physical existence? Why would it appear on highways occasionally, playing chicken with passing cars? If it were only hoaxes, why would people put themselves forward to be entangled with this? Why would people let themselves be hoodwinked? Realistically, every experience we've spoken about would have to be made up of some blend of the above explanations. And if we can untangle what remains to unite them all, maybe we can figure out what exactly is left of this creature from all of these half-fitting theories. So I was really hoping to end this one with less questions uh, instead of more, but hey-ho, that is the nature of the biz. Next week we're going to be exploring the spiritual aspects of the Sasquatch myth and revisiting some of the things we quickly passed over in a bit more detail, so I hope to catch you there. In the meantime, you can find me wherever podcasts live and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. And search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there. That said, there is a bit of a delay to when episodes end up on there as I'm trying to I'm trying to work that into my workflow, but it's a lot of juggling. This is a solo project, it's just me working on it. So everything that comes out to do with this is made by me and it's difficult, but they will all eventually make it over there for you to enjoy. But for now, much love as always. Bye.